morning. It's good to see you. I bring greetings from the eastern suburbs this morning, the promised land. I'm not meant to say things like that, am I? But it is wonderful. But it's great to be here. Um, we're in a four week, or four, four weeks into a series that we've called Deep and Meaningful. And next week we are going to begin looking at the book of Hebrews. But some of the book of Hebrews, I don't know if you've read Hebrews before, I've read Hebrews, and some of it is a little bit tricky to understand. It's a bit tricky to get your head around, and so we wanted to spend these weeks just laying some foundations before we get there. And Simon's been describing reading Hebrews like watching the final Lord of the Rings movie, Return of the King, without watching the previous two. If you did that, you'd still be able to watch it as a movie in its own right. You'd still be able to enjoy the story and figure out what was going on, but there'd be references that would go straight over your head. There'd be names and places that would be lost on you because Return of the King is the final part of a coherent story told in three parts. And the letter to the Hebrews is a bit like that. The way it describes Jesus is awesome And yet some of the references and images are hard to make sense of. And it's because it was written to people who knew the first episode like the back of their hands. And we're less familiar with that first episode. And these four weeks have been about discovering the first episode from the book of Exodus. You see, throughout scripture and across centuries, God has been telling one coherent narrative that points to Jesus Christ. And my prayer is, our prayer is, that, that next week as we begin to look at Hebrews, that we'll stand in awe of Jesus afresh. And we'll enter into a deeper and more meaningful relationship with him because of what we've learned over these few weeks. Now the last few weeks have been predominantly spent in a section of the book of Exodus where Moses had this incredibly intense experience with God up a mountain for 40 days. And God has been describing to Moses what a covenant relationship between God and his people would look like. But I want us just to kind of come up a few thousand feet and take a bit of a broader view of what's going on here. I want us to get our heads around the context for that scene of Moses and God on the mountain. You see, Moses was leading this nation of Israel. Israel were God's chosen people. And they had seen some pretty incredible things of God. God had been at work in them as a nation. God had miraculously and dramatically rescued them from Egypt where they had been enslaved. And they were now heading towards a new land that God had promised to give them. And they arrived in the desert of Sinai and had set up camp in front of Mount Sinai. And Moses was acting as a messenger between God and people, like this mediator between the people of God and God himself. And one day, they had this crazy, mind-blowing experience. It says there was thunder and lightning and thick cloud came over the mountain. 
and there was a loud trumpet blast, and there was fire, and there was smoke, and the mountain shook. The earth trembled violently as God descended on the mountain. And the trumpet got louder and louder, and as Moses spoke to God, the voice of God answered him. And the people were terrified, but God spoke to them and gave them the Ten Commandments. And God continues to speak to Moses and give him heaps of instructions around sacrifices and laws. And then this is where I want us to get to before we begin today's message is when Moses tells the people everything, all that God has said, all the requirements that he has set in place for this covenant relationship with his people. In Exodus 24 verse 3 it says, when Moses went and told the people all the Lord's words and laws, they responded with one voice. Everything the Lord has said, we will do. They were enthusiastic and wholehearted and united in their response to this God. They said, yes, we'll do it. We agree, we're on board. And they entered into this covenant. And then God called Moses and Joshua to come up the mountain with him where he would give him the law and the commandments. So Moses and Joshua went up the mountain and left Aaron and her in charge. And they were gone up the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. And it's those 40 days up the mountain with God that we've been focused on in our messages over the last few weeks. And I'm just going to quickly go over what we've talked about. The first week we talked about covenant. A covenant is like a partnership agreement. It was this agreement that God set up with his people. But I think the best way for us to understand covenant is not like a contract that we would know now, but think more of a wedding. The bride and the groom aren't saying, well, this is yours and this is mine and here's our contract. But the bride and groom are saying, I am yours and you are mine. They aren't in it for profit or for personal gain. But the covenant is about self-forgiving loyalty and sacrificial love. The second week we heard about the tabernacle and how this holy, awesome, powerful God calls them to make a sanctuary, a holy place, a sacred place. And here's the promise that it would be somewhere where God would dwell. Not that he would just drop in and stay for a few days, but God was moving in. He was coming to live right amongst his people. And then the third week, we heard about the priests, where God was creating the system where people would be able to have access to him through a priest. And Moses, where we get to today, hasn't even come back down from the mountain yet. And we pick up the story in Exodus chapter 32. And I'm going to start reading from 1 to 4. Now, I'm meant to be covering today Exodus 32, 33, and 34. So we're not going to look at much of that. So forgive me if we just literally drop in into a few verses here. But let me share with you what I believe God's laid on my heart for today. 32, starting from verse 1. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. 
Aaron answered them, Take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, These are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. You know, it sounds kind of trivial, doesn't it? <laughs> like, so big deal, they made a calf out of gold because Moses was taking too long to come down. But this was no small thing. Israel had just entered into a covenant with God. Moses was up the mountain with God, getting it all written down on the stone tablets, and he hadn't even got back yet. And they broke a commandment. And it wasn't even like the commandment that they broke was a small, obscure, hard-to-understand commandment that came way down the list. You know, you might forgive them if it was that, mightn't you? You might say, well, you know, they'd only just got it. They didn't really understand what they were meant to be doing. But if you go back to Exodus 20, where the Ten Commandments were given, Exodus 20, verse 1 said, And God spoke all these words, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. It was the very first thing God asked them to do. You shall have no other gods before me. And before Moses had even come down from the mountain, they'd already broken it. And not only did they break that first commandment, but it says that they said of these gods that they'd created, these are the gods who rescued you from Egypt. They credited these new gods with the very thing that God had done for them. Remember we talked about how a good way to understand the covenant is to think about a marriage. Well, if God in this scenario is the groom and Israel are the bride, it's like the bride has committed adultery on the wedding night. It's heartbreaking, the level of betrayal in this moment. It's serious, it's awful. And in Exodus 32 verse 19, it says, When Moses approached the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, his anger burned and he threw the tablets out of his hand, breaking them to pieces at the foot of the mountain. This is such a symbolic moment. Moses had in his hands these stone tablets that had the covenant written on them. And he sees what the people have done and he breaks them on the ground because the covenant is broken. Before it even begun, the covenant is broken. And Moses is broken. Moses is heartbroken because he's part of this adulterous bride. He didn't do it. But he understands that they, as a people, with him included, have blown it. And so in the context of all of that, of all that Israel have seen God do, in the level of wholeheartedness that they entered into this covenant, and then the depth of betrayal, what happens next is incredible. Moses makes a request of God. We're going to skip along to Exodus 33, 18. It says, then Moses said, now show me your glory. Glory is a funny word. It's not something that we talk about much outside of church, is it? You don't tend to talk about glory. 
And so I think it's sometimes the word that I don't know that we really understand what we're talking about when we say it. But in the Old Testament, um, glory was this word that described God's physical presence. It talks about how God's glory accompanied Israel through the wilderness. And if you remember the story, if you know it, God accompanied them as this pillar of cloud and this pillar of fire. It was this visible, tangible presence of God that was described as God's glory. And then Wayne Grudem, a theologian, he describes it as the appropriate outward expression of his own excellence. It's like God's glory was the part of God that was tangible for them. This invisible God, it was the part that they were able to experience. And it was making me think, you know, if you know someone, uh, probably a woman, I don't know, men wear fragrance too sometimes. If you know someone really well and they wear fragrance and they wear the same fragrance, when you walk into a room where they've been, you can often tell they've been there, can't you? Because you can smell their fragrance. And I was kind of thinking of God's glory being like that. It's like the way you knew he was around. And Moses knew he couldn't see God and live, but his desire was to know more of God. And so he asked God, show me your glory. Show me who you are. Show me this visible, outward expression of your character and your excellency. And this was God's response to Moses' request. We're in chapter 33 from verse 19. It says, and the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you. That word goodness, it could be translated as loveliness and splendor. God says, I'll cause that to pass in front of you and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But, he said, you cannot see my face for no one may see me and live. Then the Lord said, there is a place near me where you may stand on a rock. When my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. Then we skip forward. Moses, um, God asked him to take two new stone tablets up the mountain. So God's going to replace the ones that Moses broke. And we skip forward to 34 verse 4. It says, so Moses chiseled out two stone tablets like the first ones and went up Mount Sinai early in the morning as the Lord had commanded him. And he carried the two stone tablets in his hands. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. And Moses bowed to the ground at once and worshipped. Remember, we likened the covenant to marriage. And we said it's like Israel have committed adultery on their wedding night. And Moses, in that moment, has come to God and begged God, show me who you are. Show me the physical outward expression of who you are. And I don't know about you, but when I've done something wrong to someone, 
I tend to leave them alone to maybe like calm down and let the dust settle a little. But God, uh, Moses, right in the midst of this moment of betrayal, comes to God and says, show me who you are. And if you're like me, in those moments, if you've ever been betrayed, kind of the worst side of you comes out, doesn't it? If someone came to me and said, show me who you are, when they've just betrayed me, I'm not going to show them a great side of myself. But when Moses comes to God in the midst of this utter betrayal, what God portrays of himself, he does through these words, compassionate, gracious, slow to anger. There's these phrases, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands. It's a, it's a word, hesed, and there's, I don't know if I've pronounced that properly, but that's my best guess. But there's words in Hebrew and in Greek in the Bible that are not able to be translated well into English because we just don't have a word that means the same. And this is one of those words that describes this special relationship God has with his covenantal people. It's, it's translated in other translations as steadfast love, loyal love, covenant faithfulness, unfailing love, loving kindness. In the midst of betrayal, God is committed to his people with this faithfulness and love and goodness and mercy. And the contrast is stark when you put the two side by side, God's people, Israel, in all their rebellion and unfaithfulness in God, in all his mercy and goodness and love and extreme faithfulness. But Moses had this seemingly insatiable desire to know God more, to see more of him, to understand more of him. He says in, um, back in chapter 33, if you are pleased with me, teach me your ways so I may know you. And then he comes to him and says, show me your glory. Like Moses was pursuing God to know him. This holy, awesome God, Moses was desperate to know him. And I've been perplexed as I've considered the Israelites and how quickly they stuffed this covenant up. Because I look at the experiences that they had of God. I look at all they had seen of God. And I would have hoped that they could have lasted a bit longer. I would have hoped that all they had known and seen of God could have at least spurred them on for a day or a week or a month maybe. But for them to break the covenant so soon, it's distressing for me. And I think what I've seen as I've looked at Israel's journey with God is that they're happy to follow God if he's doing for them what they think he should be doing. You know, when they set him free, when, they, when God set them free from Egypt, they were happy to follow God then. But then they grumble in the desert that they have no water. But then God provides water in the desert and they're happy to follow God then. And then they grumble that he's not providing them with any food. And then when God provides them with food, they're happy to follow God then. But you see the pattern. They grumbled when God wasn't meeting their needs. It's like there were times when they wanted to follow God if he was going to be the best way to get what they needed. 
And in this scene that we've come to, Moses was the mediator between them and God. They couldn't approach God themselves. And so when Moses disappeared with God up a mountain for 40 days, if your relationship with someone is based on what they can do for you, it's pretty frustrating if they disappear for 40 days and they didn't know when he was going to come back. And so it seems to me like the Israelites have moved on to the next thing. They've said, well, God's gone. Let's make ourselves some new gods here. You know, when I was at school, I was the youngest in my year group. And so um, when I got towards the end of school, I was pretty much um, always trailing behind everyone else. I turned 18 the day I got my final exam results. But in the UK, you can drive when you're 17. And so all of the people in my year group were getting cars and driving before I was. And it's really interesting because even the most unpopular, uncool person, and it's sad that there's people like this in school, but there are people like this in school who just don't have many friends and nobody wants to be around them. But when they're the first person to get their driving license and drive to school, suddenly everyone wants to be around them, don't they? Because they have something that they would very much like. And I think it's as if at times that's how Israel were treating God. Like he was the first kid in the class to get the car. They viewed God as their ticket to getting what they wanted and having their needs met. And when following God becomes about what God can do for us, instead of desiring to know more of who he is, it does a really ugly thing in our hearts. See, when I and my needs are the focus of my life, I'm not actually able to live the life that God has designed me to live. Because every time I put myself first, or make following God about me, I break the first commandment just like the Israelites did. When I make myself and my needs the most important thing, it's like I become my own God. Maybe I haven't created a golden idol, but I become my own God in those moments, and I'm really no different to the Israelites. See, as Moses pursued God to know him more, he revealed to Moses who he is. And the words he said weren't just words. It's easy to say words, isn't it? If somebody says, what are you like? You could say whatever you want. You ask me what I'm like, I could say I'm really kind, I never do anything wrong, I'm the best wife in the world. There's many things I could say about myself, but my actions are what verifies my words, aren't they? And so God didn't only say who he was, but he went on to demonstrate who he is by his actions. Because people have continued since Exodus and since the Israelites, people have continued right up until today, and it will continue for all time, to reject God. People have continued to live their lives their own way, with themselves as the God of their life. But because he is compassionate and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness and maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin, but he doesn't leave the guilty unpunished. Because of those things, because he is who he says he is, he gave his only son, Jesus Christ, to be the perfect sacrifice for sin. A sacrifice so perfect that when Jesus was killed, 
it would provide a way for any person who believes in him to be forgiven and to be made new and to be able to relate to God. See, all the symbols of separation that we've seen over the last few weeks in the in the tabernacle and in the priesthood, all these symbols that showed actually we can't relate to God. He is holy and we are not. When Jesus died and rose again, he initiated a new covenant where not only would God dwell among his people, but God would dwell inside every one of his people by his Holy Spirit. And where he wouldn't, we wouldn't have to come to God through a priest but we would have direct access to God through Jesus Christ. I was considering this morning as we worshipped, wow, if Moses could have been here now, I reckon it would have caused him to shed a tear of excitement and joy over just what access we have to God. And I wonder how much we take that for granted. I think ultimately what Exodus shows us is that people are broken and we needed a better way. And I'm so excited that we get to begin to look at Hebrews over the next few weeks because Jesus really is the better way. I don't know if you've heard of a man called Dr. Lockridge or maybe more specifically a prayer that he prayed. It's called Dr. Lockridge's Prayer. If you haven't, I'd encourage you to write his name down and Google it. It's incredible. There's heaps of videos out there that... um, that will play it for you on YouTube. It's an amazingly powerful prayer, but it's a prayer that lists the attributes of God, so many things about God that Dr. Lockridge has discovered. But he pauses frequently throughout the prayer and he asks, do you know him? You know, this is my God, but do you know him? And that's the question that's on my heart for us for today and for you for today. Do you know him? You see, when you know someone, it changes the way that you relate to them. We, Simon and I, run a group called Street Shepherds at East that's been part of us forming a team around ourselves. And we have about 16 people, many of whom at the beginning of this year we didn't know very well. And they didn't know each other very well. And so we decided to begin the year by putting some time aside for each person in the group to share a five-minute story. And it was the story of the people and the places and the experiences that had been significant in forming them into the person they are today. And those five-minute stories that we did earlier in the year have been some of my favourite moments as we've gathered as a group. Because what those stories have done is they've enabled us to know each other more deeply. They've enabled us to now, when we look at each other, to see a bit more of each other. And they've changed the way that we're able to relate to each other. You see, as Moses pursued God, not for what he could do for him, but to know him more, it changed the way he related to God. It says at the end end of that glory passage where God shows his glory, in verse 8 it says, Moses bowed to the ground at once and worshipped. As Moses discovered more of God, it caused worship to flow out of his heart. It caused a love for God that was deeper than he'd known before. It caused adoration to come out of his mouth. And I wonder how your worship is right now. I wonder how easily your worship of God falls off your tongue. 
and overflows out of your life. And I wonder whether a pursuit of knowing God more would deepen that for you. I actually don't wonder that. I know it would do that. What have you discovered about God recently? Are you getting to know him more every day, every week, every month? Or as you sit and reflect now, do you actually not know him a lot better than the day you began to walk with him? You know, I want to encourage you, make your life quiet and still enough to have moments for him to be able to show you who he is, because he will. If you ask him to, like Moses said, show me your glory, and God showed up. One of the challenges today, are we asking him who he is? Are we pursuing knowing him more? The other thing that knowing God more changes is us. You know, at the end of these chapters that I've been looking at, the end of chapter 4, 34, verse 29, it says, When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the covenant law in his hands, he was not aware that his face was radiant because he had spoken with the Lord. You know, when Moses spent time with God to know him more, he was transformed. His face was radiant, and that's challenging for me because I know there's areas in my life that need to change, and maybe I'm struggling to change them. But this challenges me that maybe if I pursued God to know him more, that actually he would transform my life. Because it's impossible to get to know God without being changed. And so my question today is, do you know him? And maybe today you need to tell God for the first time that you believe in Jesus and you want to be forgiven for your rejection of God and your, um, the way that you've lived your life with yourself as God. Maybe that's your response today and that would be the very beginning of this journey of pursuing God to know him. And it says um, in Romans, if you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It's really as simple as that, but it will begin a lifelong journey of pursuing God and knowing him more. But maybe this morning you're already a follower of Jesus. You've already said yes to following him and committing your life to him. And maybe you're realizing today that you are not living your life in pursuit of knowing God more. Yeah, maybe could the worship team come up because we're going to worship in a moment. But you know, we as people desire to be known, don't we? It's why we love to be in community because we have something deep inside of us that needs to be known, that needs to be accepted. We need someone in our lives to know who we really are. And... You and I are created in God's image and I believe that desire to be known comes from God because God desires to be known. And he was committed through all that we've read this morning through all time to being known by us. So much so that he sent his son to walk on the earth as a man so that we could know God. You know, he's gone to extreme measures to make himself known by us, and I wonder how much we appreciate that. I wonder how much we live our lives in pursuit of knowing him more. And so I want to encourage you this morning, why don't we stand to our feet? We're going to worship. 
But I want you to consider that question. Do you know him? And are you growing to know him more every day? And I believe maybe the Holy Spirit's stirring some of our hearts this morning. You know, just... um, I know that I've been convicted this week as I've prepared this. That actually I need to spend my, more of my time seeking God to know him more, not for what he can do for me. And we're going to take communion in this time of worship. And so this is what I want to encourage you to do. You know, like God called Moses to come up the mountain to meet him, I want to encourage you to do something physical today if you want to respond to God. If you want to make a fresh commitment today to say, yes, I want to pursue you, God, to know you more. You know, as we take bread and juice, which are these simple symbols of this profound sacrifice that God made for us. Maybe you want to bring your bread and juice and come and kneel or stand at the front this morning. It's your demonstration that, yeah, God, I want, to, I want to live my life in pursuit of knowing you more. I want to rededicate myself today. And, and for you, if you're saying yes to Jesus for the first time, you can do that too. Come and bring your bread and juice and come and kneel or stand at the front as a physical sign of saying, God, I give myself to you today. I want to know you more. I want to be changed by you. Let me pray for you as we begin to worship. Father, I thank you that you desire to be known by us. And you are so holy and you are so awesome and you are so beyond our comprehension that we could learn, not learn, we could know you more every day for the rest of our lives and still not fully know you. But I pray that you'd captivate our hearts today. Father, I pray that you would move us to live our lives in pursuit of knowing you. And if we've lived for what you can do for us, then would you forgive us today? Would you help us? Help us to live our lives for you. Lord, I pray for those in here today who are saying yes to following Jesus for the first time. I thank you, God. That means they're forgiven that you make them brand new. I pray for them as they begin this journey of following Jesus. But I pray for us now as we respond. Holy Spirit, would you be moving in these moments? In Jesus' name, amen.